0: Here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. As a doctor, today's special guest, Ja Gottlieb, MD, witnessed a great deal of human suffering and learned that 80% of common diseases could be prevented by healthy lifestyle choices alone. A big part of why we don't make those choices is that we're deeply confused about pleasure. Most people think pleasure and pain are opposites, like the North and South Poles of the compass, which is not true. Given such basic confusion, it's no wonder so many of us in our pursuit of pleasure end up in pain and suffering. Groundbreaking book, ah, the pleasure book, Dr. Gottlieb dispels 2,000 years of shared shame, guilt, and ignorance to reclaim the wisdom of pleasures as the ultimate guide to a beautiful and fulfilling life. Drawing on penetrating insights from history, cutting-edge neuroscience, and spiritual wisdom, he provides the knowledge and tools to transform your life by working with your human nature rather than against it to live from love rather than fear. The son of an Austrian father and Chinese mother, Dr. Jia was born to write this book. While his father schooled him in the logic of chess, his mother imbued him with the intuitive ways of the East. After completing a BA in physics from the University of Colorado, an MD from Northwestern University, and a family medicine residency at the top-rated community hospital of Sonoma County, he, journaled, he journeyed to Japan and China for intensive training in martial arts and acupuncture. Returning to Boulder, Colorado in 1984, Dr. Jha established the Still Mountain Clinic, which he directed for over 25 years. He holds black belts in aikido and karate, plays the bamboo flute, is a lifelong student of yoga and Zen meditation, and is learning to tango. He is the proud father of three daughters. Welcome, Dr. Ja. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Randy.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for being my guest today. We have a lot to cover. Uh, so your book, ah, The Pleasure Book, I've had the pleasure to read it, and it is so brilliant. Um, There's so much in there that we never really thought about, but that affects all of us. So what prompted you to write a book about pleasure?
1: Well, as uh, you mentioned in the intro, um, you know, being a doctor, I've seen just a great deal of pain and suffering. And, And most doctors write books about disease and pain and suffering. And uh, having done that for so much of my life, I really didn't want to do that uh, more. And, and I realized that um, so much of that suffering is unnecessary. And it's unnecessary because we make poor lifestyle choices. And to change someone's lifestyle, uh, in my opinion, is as difficult or maybe even more difficult than to, uh, you know, redo their coronary arteries after smoking for 30 years or 40 years. So um, I wanted to find out how to motivate people to make these healthy changes. And, of course, the usual motivation that doctors resort to is fear of pain and suffering. If you don't do... Such and such, then uh, you know you're likely to get these kinds of diseases. And fear is just, uh, although a powerful motivator, uh, it causes us to contract and become inflexible and uncreative, and and quite frankly makes us miserable uh, and fearful. So I looked deep into it and realized that the other great motivating factor in life, in fact, for many of us, uh, much greater than fear, is seeking pleasure, uh, because we are, at the end of the day, pleasure-seeking organisms, like other organisms. What we call stimulus and response, uh, what we call instinct in lower animal forms, really in humans, we call pleasure and pain. So, that's how I got started uh, thinking about pleasure, and then it just took me uh, on a pretty wild, pretty wild journey.
0: Well, I can see that by this book. I mean, you um, you have been all over the place, and I know this took you many years to write, and lots and lots of thought, and you know, and time, contemplation you say that there are seven immutable laws of pleasure. Would you like to discuss that?
1: Yes, the uh, seven immutable laws of pleasure are really the distillation of what uh, is in this book from a more theoretical point of view. And and so I wanted to uh, create something that would be relatively simple to uh, navigate and remember um, and uh, would you like me to go through these sure yeah okay uh the and, and the, these are uh well presented uh in my book trailer which is on my website uh which gives a visual uh, understanding the the first uh the immutable law of pleasure is original wholeness. And what I like to say is that you were born from pleasure and you were born for pleasure. It is your origin, source, and birthright. And what I mean by that is uh, we're born originally whole and originally pure. The notion that of, um, is called original sin Uh, which is a topic I take up in my book, is really an erroneous uh, idea created in the 4th century by uh, St. Augustine. We really are originally whole. The second immutable law is the law of colors. And by that I mean pleasure comes in four colors. Usually we think of pleasure, and so, you know, the way my book starts, I, I... uh, tell a little story when people would ask me, well, "What is your book about?" I would play a little game and I'd say, "Well, I'll tell you if you give me your very first association." And then I would say the book is about pleasure, and the first association typically was sex, maybe three out of five times, um, and that's kind of the way our culture has resented the notion of pleasure. But if you think about it, even just for a few moments, you realize, yeah, well, there's a lot more to pleasure than just sex. Uh, Food is a close second. And actually, there are four uh, what I call colors of pleasure, red being physical, uh, green, emotional, blue, mental, and white, spiritual. So like the colors on your um, computer screen, They're made of three basic colors, red, green, and blue. And when those three colors combine, they create white. And in the same way, we have uh, a realm of physical pleasures uh, that are also related to emotional pleasures and then mental pleasures. And when we combine those pleasures, because there's not sharp boundaries between them. They all uh, bleed into each other. It just turns out that the highest pleasure is spiritual. So that's the colors. The third immutable law is contrast and comparison. And this is really uh, very fundamental to how our nervous system works. We're continually contrasting and comparing our uh, senses. So, for example, you can only see, uh, because of contrast and comparison, light and dark. If you're in a whiteout, you're visually blind, as blind as on a a dark, moonless night. And the same with hearing. White noise is actually a kind of silence. Um, And that's true for all the senses, but it's also true for how we think. Uh, We are always contrasting and comparing ourselves uh, to others. We're always contrasting and comparing our situation to previous situations or hoped-for future situations. Um, So pleasure is actually relative and uh, continually changing. The fourth immutable law is thresholds. And this is uh, maybe the most subtle of uh, what we've talked about. We typically think that pleasure and pain are on opposite ends of a continuum, like the north and south poles of a compass. And uh, we want to move north and avoid south. We want to seek pleasure and avoid pain. But this turns out to be false. Pleasure and pain are not opposites. And the way I present this uh, typically is to consider the question, what is the opposite of pain? And most people will say, well, pleasure. And uh, actually, the opposite of pain is, Anesthesia, no pain at all, hmm. uh which is why, when you have a surgery, you know the next most important person after the surgeon is the anesthesiologist. Uh, this misunderstanding about uh pleasure and pain as being opposites. Leads to all kinds of problems. One of the one of the main ones is we have this notion of comfort. The notion of comfort is if I'm avoiding pain, I must be having a good time. But uh, as any couch potato will tell you, that that's not really true. So, what where is what is the relationship of pleasure and pain? And I, I talk about a pleasure pain continuum. And as the intensity of sensation increases, you're feeling uh, more and more. You're feeling more and more pleasure. At a certain point, you meet the threshold. And at that pleasure-pain threshold, pleasure turns into pain. Um, You can think about this in terms of uh, scratching a mosquito bite. At first, it feels good. But if you keep on digging at it, uh, eventually it's, it's painful. So that's the fourth law of uh, pleasure. I call thresholds, specifically the pleasure pain threshold. The fifth law is cycles, and that really uh, is the understanding that pleasure comes in waves. Um, but these, and by the way, these laws are something that you need to not so much think about as feel. So you know when you go out to exercise and uh you start put on your shoes, you, you get out the door, you start moving, you begin moving into what I call active pleasure that is you're you're putting out some energy that's a very active uh situation and And then, after the workout, you kick back and relax, and that's also a pleasure. Some people call it the endorphin high. Um, That is what I would call passive pleasure when we relax, uh, when we go to sleep at night, when we take a nap. Then in between active and passive pleasure is really the most subtle and uh, to some people the sweetest pleasure of all, and that is uh, equanimity or what we would call peace of mind. And that's when there's no longer any desire. There's no uh, desire for to get something, and nor is there an aversion to avoid something. It's entirely neutral. And according to Epicurus, who was uh, the greatest Greek philosopher thinking about pleasure, he identified equanimity, what he called ataraxia, as the greatest pleasure of all. And he was right about that. Um, As I uh, talk about it in my book, there are three gateways to paradise. And uh, the gateway of equanimity is certainly one of them. But Epicurus uh, uh, didn't mention and actually wasn't interested in the other two gateways, which is the gateways of ecstasy and bliss. So that's cycles. Pleasure comes in active, passive, and uh, neutral waves, just like a sinusoidal uh, wave pattern that you might see, or waves at the uh, seashore. The sixth law is desire and surrender. By desire, I mean things we want, or those things that we seek. So, uh, desire by its very nature, is future-directed. It's We want something in the future, but it's not happening right now. Surrender, its opposite, is, uh, by that I mean, relaxation, acceptance, allowing things to be as they are. Uh, it, as it turns out, uh, we need both. Here in the West, we tend to have a preponderance or an excess of desire. You know, we're running around trying to get more and more things. Um, in other parts of the world, uh, in Asia and so forth, um, India, particularly from a Western point of view, we get this feeling like, wow, these people are are kind of lazy. They're not motivated. They don't have enough desire. And They may suffer from too much surrender, too much of acceptance of, uh, you know, the fly crawling around the face or whatever. And really to experience pleasure and to uh, enjoy life to the full, we need an equal measure of both. Both desire. And surrender. And when they come into balance, then something quite remarkable occurs. That is that pleasure uh, intensifies. But you can have different levels of balance. So you can balance five pounds and five pounds, five pounds of desire, five pounds of surrender. Or you could balance 500 pounds of desire and 500 pounds of surrender. They're both balanced, but uh, the latter is much more intense and, as it turns out, much more pleasurable. So I say that the pleasure, uh, the law of desire and surrender is that pleasure is an inner dance of effort and relaxation. The seventh uh, and final immutable law of pleasure is renewable pleasure. And renewable pleasure is really a radical revisioning of what pleasure actually is. And by that, I mean we can think of pleasure as a natural resource. And important to our well-being as fresh air and clean water. Making thinking of pleasure as a natural resource just uh, shifts the whole conversation out of morality and religion and uh, so forth into a very uh, basic physical need and allows us to think of pleasure in new ways. So renewable pleasure, you can think of it as. Um, say walking along the beach, your carbon footprint is relatively small and it's very enjoyable. If you have to fly a thousand miles to get to the beach, that's not something you have to do but (laughs) those of us who live in uh, Colorado have to fly to get to the beach. Uh, That um, has a much larger carbon footprint. Okay, so that's a very straightforward way of thinking about renewable pleasure. Pleasure that is, um, as I say in the title of my last chapter, Renewable Pleasure for a Sustainable World. Uh, But if you look even deeper into that notion of pleasure as a natural resource, I think you'll come to realize that we, human beings, ourselves, are the source of renewable pleasure. So it is the pleasure that we give to each other. And this uh, renewable pleasure, I would submit, is the highest quality pleasure that exists, the pleasure we exchange with another being. We think that, and, and have been uh, trained and uh, marketed to, that. Pleasure is having a bigger house, a faster car, uh, more finer clothes. But actually, that's not the highest quality pleasure that we're all seeking. We we want love. We want affection. We want care and kindness and respect. Uh, That is something you can only get from another being. Okay. uh,
0: Thank you, thank you for that explanation. Yep. Okay, so that's, a, pretty yeah, that's good, uh, was a little
1: bit more than you. Yeah, yeah. but it's
0: that's um, it's yeah, details. that's a pretty good roundup of of you know the content of this book. I wanted to ask you how repression affects pleasure.
1: What, you what talk do you mean about by that, repression?
0: Well, you talk about um, in your I think it's your first chapter. And the origin of original sin. So you're talking mm-hmm. about, um, people who, um, especially people who have religions that repress their mm. desires that, um, it's, creates a cycle of shame and guilt. Yes. And yes, um, and you said one could view Augustine's toxic and repressive theory um, see, as, as the mask to be used to cover his shadow. Uh, so is that something that you can speak to or um, should I move on?
1: <laughs> no, oh yes that that is actually um, at the heart of a lot of our confusion about pleasure. I mean we look at other animals other organisms, and they don't seem to have a problem with pleasure. Uh, they, they know what they want. They uh, go about getting it. And they know when to stop. Uh, in, in nature, you, you don't see obesity. You know, it's, um, organisms are self-regulating. and Nature is self-regulating. But somehow we as human beings are dysregulated and we don't know when to stop and, and we don't know how to stop often. And so many of our poor lifestyle choices arise from a fundamental confusion about pleasure. What makes it so confusing is this belief that somehow pleasure is bad or the pursuit of pleasure is a sign of weakness. Um, this comes out in, you know, happiness research, uh, which has been very popular, and, and, and I quite welcome it. Um, this was a major pivot in psychology and now in medicine. That is uh, before the happiness um, movement, psychology was completely preoccupied with negative states of being, like repression and guilt, shame, anxiety, uh, and so forth. And then um, they came up with this idea, well, let's talk about not just how to uh, deal with disease, disordered mental states, let's talk about enhancing, take a normal person and enhance their experience. Um, And, you know, now there are drugs that are performance-enhancing drugs. Um, This triggered the uh, positive psychology movement. And as I say, it was a welcome change. But it's still within this framework of a negative association with pleasure. So, happiness researchers go to some length to distinguish happiness from pleasure uh, because pleasure has that tawdry association with sensuality, sex, and so forth. And this is a really basic confusion. Happiness is simply pleasure experienced at an emotional level. The idea of uh, joy and fun, these are emotional forms of pleasure. But then uh, people in the happiness research will talk about, well, you know, uh, what really makes you happy is having meaning and purpose in your life. But meaning and purpose, those are intellectual constructs that my job is meaningful, or that my life is meaningful. Those are ideas. Those are ideas that other animals, for example, don't uh, entertain or are troubled by. Well, abstract mental constructs that we find playable are simply pleasure experienced at a mental level. Mm -hmm. We're back to the colors of pleasure. Right. And... Uh, Spiritual is exactly the same. When you walk through a redwood forest and you feel some deep connection to uh, a source greater than yourself, and it's pleasurable, uh, that's a spiritual pleasure. Thank you. So when we get encumbered with guilt and shame, uh, which is the notion of original sin, that you were born not originally whole, you were born originally broken. Uh, once we enter into that realm, then we're going against our own true nature. And if you go against your true nature, you get confused pretty quickly. And that's our situation. Hmm. Does it? Does that help? Uh... Yes. Thank you. Well, you you mentioned the notion of repression. And repression, what repress means to uh, re means to do again, and press means to push down. So to repress something is to push something down. And, and what repression is, quite literally, is pushing down our true nature. And our true nature is that we desire pleasure, uh, all kinds of pleasure. So that's where repression comes in. Mm-hmm. and And if you waste your energy repressing... You don't have as much energy available just to enjoy life.
0: <laughs> that's so true. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things about religion, I think, that um, I think most, well, at least Judeo Christianity um, yes. religions mm-hmm. are very largely about repression, about depriving yourself. Uh, But I don't want to get into religion (laughs) because, yeah, that's just an opinion.
1: No, I understand. Religion is is a uh, sensitive topic still, uh, unfortunately, Uh, because I think we all can agree. There's something uh, very uh, difficult to explain, uh, mysterious, that is going on. And uh, this is, I think, a universal human experience and different people call it different things and they have different religions.
0: Right. The pleasure prism that you talk about in your book, I know this, there's a lot to that, but can you briefly talk about that, what the pleasure prism is?
1: We've already touched on it in terms of the colors of Okay. So if you take, if you take a pleasure, any pleasurable experience, You can view it through the lens of a prism, and just like a prism breaks white light into its component rainbow colors, the pleasure prism takes a pleasurable experience and uh, refracts it into its physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual components. So that's uh, just another way of talking about the colors of pleasure. But the pleasure prism has a deeper biological basis that I would just like to touch on. Um, this is not the pleasure prism and the colors of pleasure uh, is not just a arbitrary um, categorization of pleasures that I made up it's really rooted in the evolution of the human forebrain, and that's why these colors are so uh, important to understand, that they refer to different parts of our own evolutionary development, which continue to operate to this very moment. The first part is the reptilian, Um, and what I'm talking about here is a, uh, a construct from a, developed by uh, Dr. Paul McLean, who was a, a physician that then got involved in um, neurobiology long before there was the term neurobiology. And he became the head of the uh, NIH uh, National Institutes of Health Uh, Department of Brain Evolution. So he was not just some maverick. He was right in the mainstream, but had come up uh, really through his own training and inquiry. What he wanted to understand was human behavior. And based on his studies of anatomy, he realized that the human brain evolved through three distinct stages, the first being reptilian. And uh, that's like snakes and uh, other types of uh, reptiles that creep around on the earth. And then the second, and, and reptiles, by the way, are, are very physically uh, oriented. You know, They don't think about the future or past. They're very much in the now. And what reptiles like, that is what they enjoy, how they get pleasure, is through repetition. So it's very easy to understand. Reptiles like repetition. Uh, This is the pleasure of knitting or beating, just repeating an activity over and over again. Uh, Similar to running, anything that we do over and over again. Uh, Habits can be very pleasurable. The second level of evolution, after reptiles, uh, was early mammalians, furry creatures. And if you look at your skin on the back of your hand, you'll see remnants of reptilian scales. Those are all those lines and creases. Um, With the advent of mammals, the, the scales began to sprout hair. And in the brain, it evolved from the reptilian brain to the early mammalian brain, which looked like a uh, a, an exuberance of brain tissue around the reptilian brain and brain stem, and it looked like a limbic, like a limiting um, layer of brain tissue, and so was called the limbic. Brain and the limbic brain is where the amygdala, the pleasure center, uh, the memory center, the hippocampus, various parts of our brain that make us mammals. Uh, and what do mammals do for pleasure? Again, it's very easy to remember <laughs> because mammals uh, come from that word mama. Uh, which is one of the very first words we utter uh, uh, in many different languages. It's mommy, and uh, that's breastfeeding. Uh, and where do you breastfeed? Where do you breastfeed at the mammary glands, um, the breast? So um, mammals like that um, warm and fuzzy feeling. And mammals, unlike reptiles, mammals are herd animals. And we are, in fact, herd animals. The the recent uh, political uh, chaos demonstrates our herd animal behavior. We uh, instinctively follow the leader, whoever that uh, is. Okay, then the next level, after you get the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, uh, then you get to the primate, and that is the forebrain. That, that is the um, cerebral cortex, which in the human brain makes up fully 85% of the brain volume and gives us our distinct uh, highbrow, forehead, and allows us to think in abstract, symbolic terms. So... Uh, that those are the physical, emotional, and mental pleasures. When those three brains, the triune, meaning tri, meaning three, when they're well-integrated, well-experienced, uh, working together, then they point to what I believe is our next stage of human evolution, what I call homo spiritualis. When our three uh, previous evolutionary brains are integrated. We have access to what you might call the spiritual realm, the spiritual pleasures that I was speaking of. Right. So okay, the pleasure prism is it's uh, a key to the whole uh, notion of looking at pleasure. Yeah.
0: Uh, all right. Great. Perception. You mentioned in the book that everybody's perception will be different. So if, take, for instance, a peach. No two people mm. will experience the peach exactly the same way. Uh, yeah. So how does, how does our perception affect our pleasure?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. <clears throat> and, and a really critical question. Because we know that. Uh, different strokes are different folks we we each have our own pleasures that we seek, and uh, there's a huge variety of them, a huge range of them and so how, how do we explain that what's going on there? Um, and this is where perception comes in, and perception is a tricky thing. Um, we have reality as it exists, which is something we can't quite directly uh, get a hold of because we experience reality through our senses, which are, you know, limited by our biology. For example, uh, a bee, when it looks at a flower, it's seeing all kinds of um, ultraviolet colors Uh, whereas we just see the ones that within our visual spectrum. The same with dogs. Uh, Dogs can't see very well. They're like maybe four or five times less visually uh, acute, but they can smell 40 or 50 times better than us. So every organism, we all live on the same reality, the same planet, but each organism experiences, i.e., perceives, a different uh, aspect of this reality, and so it is. Uh, in trust species, each each of us are experiencing a different reality. Uh, excuse me a second. So, um, so it's highly individual. And there's a word for this. I I had heard it once uh, in, oddly enough, an art class. I'm not really an artist, but I sat in on this class learning how to draw biological images, like in this case, an image of a butterfly wing. And the art teacher mentioned this word, and I thought, wow, that is such a cool word. And then I (laughs) forgot it. And I had been looking for that word for about 20 years and finally it appeared to me again. That word is umwelt. It's a German word, uh, umwelt. Um, And umwelt is best translated
0: in English
1: as uh, environment. That doesn't quite capture it. What was meant Involved is that each of us sees our own environment. Each, as I said, each organism perceives its own world. So um, our perception is a combination of the reality as it is, and then our perception of it. And our perception is influenced tremendously by the ideas. The stories, our culture um, our religions, etc, the way we were raised in our families to think about in this case pleasure, highly influence our experience, our perception of it, and that's why the cultural understanding the cultural uh, filters that have been placed over us is important to basically coming to understand pleasure ourselves at our our personal level in 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 terms of our own own belt. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, it does. So it's highly subjective, right? Right. I can't know what anyone else's pleasure is. And as a matter of fact, from a scientific point of view, Um, I can't measure pleasure because uh, there is no device that will measure pleasure. I have to basically ask someone, well, how pleasurable is that? And they they can maybe mark it on a um, graph. And, And this is what makes understanding pleasure from a scientific point of view really tricky. Unlike physics, you know, where you can measure the temperature the altitude, the length, etc. With pleasure, you can't measure it. It's highly subjective. Um, and we as a culture have difficulty with subjective experiences. So
0: Okay that makes sense. I hmm. wanted to talk about surrender. And mm-hmm. you say in your book, when fearful, we contract into a particle. When in love, we expand into a wave. The trick is to bring those, these two aspects of our being into balance, at which point we are in the optimal flow of the Tao, which is the ultimate art of living well. Surrender is something that uh, human beings tend to want to control. Mm-hmm how is how would it benefit us to to surrender more often than controlling
1: yeah that that's really the nut of it right there if you really want to enjoy your life more you simply must become skillful in surrender and and i say that with great uh, certainty because, as I mentioned earlier, desire is always future-oriented. Pleasure can only be found in the present moment. Pleasure is not in the future. It's now or not. So then, how do you get to the present moment? Is the key. You can't get there through desire. Desire can, kind of like um, Moses, it can it can bring you to the promised land, but you can't enter in. To enter into the present moment, the only way that is done is through an act of surrender. And, and I'm choosing my words carefully because. Uh, An act is an action, which, again, in our uh, Western mind, means you've got to do something. You've got to surrender. Well, just try to relax. Well, that's an oxymoron. (laughs) Right. You can't try to relax. You're going to get really uptight if you try to relax. uh, Because relaxation occurs with the cessation of effort. So there's nothing to do. There's nothing you can do. Uh, This presents difficulties for those of us who always want to be in control and are always doing. I'm talking about learning how to not do. That is the practice of surrender. And yes, we can practice surrendering. And anything we practice we get better at the moment we surrender, we are in the present moment um, but what are we what are we to surrender is to give up something so what are we giving up? The most important thing the most critical thing that we're giving up in the moment of surrender is the notion of me, myself, and mine. It is the giving up of the ego, the self-identity, that I am an individual uh, particle that bounces off of other particles. Surrender is the activity of becoming a wave. Waves don't bounce off of each other. They pass through each other. Uh, they add up or they detract, or but they move right on through. You know, there are hundreds of waves passing through the air, the atmosphere, radio waves, Wi-Fi waves, uh, 5G, 4G, etc. And they're not colliding with each other. They're just passing right, right on through. So... Learning how to become a wave is equivalent to learning how to surrender. And to just give you an idea um, how this can be very simple. I mean, it sounds a little bit complicated because I'm putting it into words. But the actual uh, activity of surrender is very simple. You can bite into a peach with such presence of mind, meaning to be present, the present meaning now you can bite into a peach with such complete immersion into peach experience that you you as a individual a self, as an ego entity, disappear into the activity of peach. <laughs> <laughs> and at that moment you will experience peach pleasure. <laughs> When you put these things into words, yes. you know, they just get... Yes. You know.
0: I know. What does it mean to live in the sweet spot?
1: Right. So the sweet spot is sweet because it's pleasurable, first and foremost. And the sweet spot is that point of balance. So, you know, I write about it in my book in terms of uh, a metaphor of stringing a tennis racket. And when a tennis racket is well-strung, in the middle is the sweet spot. And if you hit the ball in the sweet spot, it feels great. Uh, You have maximum power, maximum control. Uh, You can put that ball anywhere you wish and maximum efficiency. So, uh, and, And you know when you hit the ball in the sweet spot because it feels great. If you hit a rim shot, it feels off and, uh, and not sweet. So in the same way in our lives uh, we have a number of factors that we're trying to address make a living uh, eat well exercise, sleep uh, intimate relationships spiritual practice and How can we juggle all of these? Well, as I've been saying, the key is balancing desire and surrender. When you get to that balance point, you're at the sweet spot. But now we're talking about balance in uh, six different dimensions. Exercise, nutrition, relationships, work, spirituality, and sleep. These are the six essentials that uh, go into making a good life. How do we balance those? Uh, And that's the, the practice of living in the sweet spot. But the important thing to understand is balance is not a place. It's not like, oh, now I'm in balance, I'm there. No, balance itself is an activity. You know, if a pendulum swings back and forth, it's seeking its balance point. When it finally gets to the plumb line, if you looked at it really carefully, you'd realize it's still moving, but really small vibrations, even down to the level of the uh, atoms and molecules that make up the pendulum. So balance is a process, and I'm sure... Uh, We've all had this experience of like, wow, our life is really working now. And then we're almost afraid to say it because the next moment something might go awry and we're out of balance again. That's true. Um, So it's a process. Uh, Becoming more skillful with pleasure, understanding the seven immutable laws of pleasure, will help us spend more time in that sweet spot or close to the sweet spot.
0: Okay. How can meditation, how can a practice of meditation bring us pleasure? Because I know meditation is very important for us. And I know for me, uh, since I've been meditating for so many years, I go into bliss Mm -hmm. very easily. So Mm -hmm. how can meditation, you know, if if we want to encourage others to have a practice of meditation, yeah. Describe the pleasure that that will bring them.
1: I, I, I'm happy to, but I'm curious, um, it, how, has med- how long have you been meditating? Roughly?
0: Roughly. Mm, 20 years or
1: more. Okay. That's, that's a long practice. And, and I, I'm curious, how have you found it helpful to enjoying your life?
0: Well, what the way that I use meditation is I use it for different things. Sometimes I use it to start my day, to mm-hmm. just clear me, you know, give me a clear start of my day and to be very relaxed. Sometimes I use it to relieve stress. If I feel that mm-hmm. my day is, there's something in my day that is creating stress and I don't want to take that into my body, I will meditate. Yes. And I do different meditations. I do different kinds. I was trained in uh, what am I trained in? TM, Transcendental. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I learned that many years ago. But I use different. I use the breath. I use uh, guided sometimes. Mm -hmm. Different, all different kinds of things. Yeah, all different kinds of things. But what I find is that because I've been doing it so long that before I even know it, I'm in bliss. And I Mm -hmm. really miss most of of the experience (laughs) because I sort of blank out, Mm. you know? So...
1: Oh, you sort of blank out. Yeah. And and you call that blissful.
0: Bliss Bliss is, yeah, when I'm sort of in that place, that sweet spot where I just kind of want to stay there. I want to just remain in that space of nothingness almost. So how can, for everyone else though, how can meditation bring pleasure?
1: Right. Okay. Well, thanks for that uh, uh, description of your experience. Um, I I want to add a little to that. The, The... it's said that there are four levels of meditation. The first level is to get a certain uh, advantage, uh, learn how to relax, and um, and indeed meditation can help us learn how to relax, but uh, it's in a very subtle sort of way. The, the second level. Of meditation is to achieve certain abilities. That is, we realize, hey, if I'm more relaxed and I'm more clear, I'm less stressed, I'm more effective in the world. I can do more work more effectively. I can uh, be with other people um, more effectively. The third level of meditation practice is then for uh, spiritual enlightenment. Uh, I'm getting an understanding of how the universe works and my relationship to it. But then it's said that the fourth and highest level of meditative practice is for no reason at all. I meditate for no reason at all. This turns out to be extremely radical because... um, As I said earlier, desire is future-oriented. And desire is always the handmaiden of the ego.
0: Right behind desire
1: is I desire, I want, uh, I'm moving towards something. And so to meditate for no reason at all, that is, without desire, for a particular outcome called happiness, bliss, clarity, relaxation, what have you, uh, is radical because everything we do in life, when we think about it, it's for a reason. I go to work to make money, to buy things, take care of my family, etc. To do something for no reason, to have one small area of my day where I do something for no reason, um, teaches me how to surrender. And that, and that means meditation, for me, isn't always blissful or uh, enjoyable, or even the moment I say, wow, this is feeling good, I want more, I have reappeared and I'm no longer in a state of surrender. Sometimes meditation is really uncomfortable. And many people, when they begin to first just sit still, uh, start to feel uncomfortable. they to still pain in their body or in their mind. Unpleasant uh, memories, associations appear. The, the chatter of their own internal voice begins to drive them crazy.
0: <laughs> so
1: meditation is not always uh, an enjoyable experience. and In fact, for most people at the very beginning, it's an uncomfortable experience. But again, you need it with this equanimity. Mm -hmm. And that's how you begin to train equanimity. You begin to train surrender. And then, yes, with long practice, as you have done, uh, one tends to quite naturally enter into this uh, state of Let's just call it emptiness. And and when that state is fully developed, there is no I present to objectify it. I I have disappeared into this experience. And afterwards, I feel the results. I go, wow, that was good.
0: We're out of time, um, Dr. Jobs. So I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned your website earlier and uh, that there's a trailer, yes. a book trailer on there. What is your website? Uh,
1: it is Dr. without a period, uh, Dr. And that's J, J- I A M D.com. Yeah, the jaw is a little bit problematic, but it's Dr.
0: JaMD.com. J- okay, perfect. Correct. Perfect. And we're talking about your book today, Ah, the Pleasure Book. And this book is available where? On
1: Amazon. Amazon? Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Mm -hmm. Perfect, perfect. And it's also available as Audible, which is uh, quite enjoyable if you go for a long walk to just plug it in or if you're driving your car.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for letting us know. That's that's wonderful. Mm Well, we got quite an education today on what pleasure is. Thank you. I know that you, as I said earlier, I know that you've put a tremendous amount of thought into this book, and I can we can see by your explanation of this, because these are things that we, most of us, have never thought about. So I want to thank you for bringing that to us today. It's always nice to know how to have a pleasurable life. We all want that. So thank you very yes. much for being my guest today. It's, it's been wonderful And thank you for all your knowledge, your wisdom.
1: And thank you, Randy, for your uh, insightful questions and, and having me on your program to share this with your listeners. It's really been a pleasure for me.
0: <laughs> a pleasure. You are so welcome. Well, have a great day. Enjoy the rest of your okay. day. Okay. Take care.
1: Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye now. Hello.